We are in the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation this evening, and the title of my message for the next three weeks will be The Voices of Victory. The Voices of Victory. How many of you have ever looked at or studied the event that changed the history of the world in the 1900s that we know as World War II? Have you ever read books on World War II? Have you ever looked at movies, documentaries, or studied the history of World War II? It is fascinating to do so. But the whole world rejoiced when World War II came to an end. At the end of World War II, when that final day of victory came, the whole world celebrated. But what many people don't know is that the actual announcement of victory was absolutely, uh, it was slow in coming. People saw that things were coming to an end. They saw that Germany's back was to the wall. Adolf Hitler had killed himself. But yet the war continued, even though it was only a matter of time until the German army had to realize that their defeat was imminent. And therefore they had to acknowledge that defeat, and then they had to surrender. And the world was preparing for this day of victory up until that point. And they waited in anticipation. And yet even though even before that day arrived, and even though the world knew that Germany's back was to the wall, and their hierarchy and their their um, leadership was all but decimated, some of the worst skirmishes took place because the German troops were so embedded in the areas in which they were. So many lives were lost, even though victory was at the horizon. And finally, when the uh, German high command realized those who were left, realized that they had nowhere else to go, with Russia coming in from the east and the Allied forces coming in from the west, finally they surrendered. Why do I bring that up this evening? In the next three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, I see the same sense, I get the same sense from the words in which John gives us. That there's this atmosphere, there's this excitement that the end is growing near. That the final victory is almost to be had. And yet there is still great darkness and there is still a time of great trouble that needs to be gone through until the return of Jesus Christ. In the next three chapters, we are going to read this word voice, voice, voices, etc. over and over and over again. As different voices sound out that the end is near, but there are a few things left to accomplish. And we begin this evening by once again revisiting those in whom we first met in Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 individuals sealed by God. And we are going to discover that all 144,000 are now here at the end with God. Not one of them has been lost. All are accounted for. God has perfectly preserved them as He promised to do through 
this incredible tribulation time. We'll find a little bit more about their character. But it is these who apparently are invited to sing a new song that only they can learn. Being the first fruit of what began seven years earlier and therefore allowed for many to come to saving faith in one of the darkest times in the world's history, this last period of time before the end. The end being the return of Jesus Christ, which we'll read for ourselves once we get to chapter 19. After the 144,000, we are going to be introduced to three angels that proclaim three different messages. And then we are going to meet the Lord Himself as He loosens His sickle of judgment upon the earth in swiftness and suddenness. And then we're going to meet a fourth angel that brings about the severity of that time of judgment as the unbridled, full concentrated wrath of God is poured upon the earth. But in each case, there's a sense of victory is at hand. The end is near. Our king is about to return. And in the midst of it all, we find an encouragement to those who will die at this period of time and stating that it's better for you to die. Your labors are over. Your deeds are done. Now you're in the presence of the Lord. And so here we begin in verse 1 of chapter 14. And again, we are introduced to these 144,000 individuals that have been sealed by God. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits uh, for God and the Lamb, and they are, I'm sorry, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. John now takes us to the end where he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. There is debate if this Mount Zion is in heaven or on the earth. To me, it is more clear that it is on the earth, and that way it is consistent with the Old Testament passages that talk about the Lord's physical return to Mount Zion, and now He is joined with the 144,000 that have been preserved during that time. Mount Zion represents the hills in which the city of Jerusalem is, sits upon. And as he is there with the 144,000, heaven appears also to be open. For in uh, this they hear a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters 
like the sound of a loud thunder. In this, we were going to find a parallel that is repeated several times. I looked and then behold, I saw. And here he is describing what he is seeing. It is an era of celebration. It is an era of rejoicing. And as this voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunders, the voice I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they were singing a new song before the, th- the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now there is a grammatical issue here that almost all recognize, and that is the identification of those who are actually singing. Is it the 144,000 singing? Is it the 144,000 being sung to? And that's why the word learned is used there. It, only they could learn it. It seems like they, it's something that they are being instructed in. The concept of a new song is found in the Old and New Testament. It means being able to rejoice in something God has uniquely done and that they have personally experienced. Throughout the Old Testament, you have examples of individuals who then bursted into a song after God had done something great. For example, Moses coming through the, the Red Sea. Uh, that would give me a moment of pause and even to maybe write a quick song and sing it up to God. I would probably would make it up as I went because I'd be so happy to see what God has just done. But a new experience... They're rejoicing over the events that have now taken place, their preservation through this period of time, all sealed and secure, and all are found with the Lamb without any being lost. Not 143,999, all 144,000. The same number that were sealed from the beginning. And as the rejoicing took place and this loud voice was heard, as harpists were playing... The four living creatures and uh, before the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. What does he mean by that? There is no doubt that these 144,000 are now being used in contrast to those in whom we read about in chapter 13. I'm speaking of those who showed and demonstrated their allegiance to the Antichrist and to the false prophet by receiving the mark of his name on their hand or on their forehead. These individuals sealed previously with the name of the Father and the Son upon them are now used in contrast, and John is now using them as an example, saying that God has carried them through and preserved them all until the end, and not one has been lost. But further characteristics of their identity is given in this issue of defilement. Were they actually all male who were all virgins? Or does it mean something else? Is it just symbolic or figuratively spoken of? In throughout the Old Testament, there is undoubtedly passages that are given that adultery and fornication are often words to describe spiritual idolatry. Obviously, the greatest act of idolatry took place in chapter 13 
where the world surrendered themselves to the Antichrist and to the false prophet. Here they stand above that, sealed in God by His grace being carried through this time and allowed to be preserved for this purpose. Or were they actually virgins? And the reason I ask that question is because it says, did not defile themselves with women. The word woman is used there. Women is used there. And it wouldn't be inconsistent. If you think about it, Jeremiah 16, God told Jeremiah not to take on a wife and a family because difficult times were coming and he didn't want Jeremiah to suffer like the others were going to suffer as he went to describe a horrific time that Israel was going to go through. Well, didn't Jesus himself warn of those who had family during this time and hope that they would not be pregnant during this time and with child? Didn't Paul state in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 that in times of distress, maybe it's better to remain celibate? So that wouldn't be inconsistent either. In either case, they were sanctified unto the Lord completely. In every aspect of their life, it was, everything from spiritual idolatry to even um, keeping themselves from the temptations and the lusts of the flesh, they were sold out 100% in Christ and given over to Him. I think that's the real lesson to be learned here. That they were sanctified. They, were, they allowed themselves to be set apart for the purposes of God. What are those purposes? I believe it's found in these words when it talks about they have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. Meaning that they were the beginning of what God was going to do at this time and place. And in their mouth was no lie was found, for they are blameless before God. This gives me a moment of pause because of the characteristics that we are given of these 144,000. They were pure, spiritually, physically pure before the Lord. They followed the Lamb without hesitation, it says there before us. They have no lies on their lips. They were blameless. This is the characteristic I think every Christian should strive for, don't you? That I think we fall far short from. I think that often we need to take a moment of pause and to ask ourselves some self-examinating questions about our personal conduct and holiness before the Lord. We believe that Christ has set us apart just as He set these individuals apart for His purposes, His plan, and for His glory. I don't think any Christian can deny that fact. When you became a Christian, God brought you out of this world into His kingdom. He brought you from darkness to light, from death to life. We are a new creation. We are no longer subjected to the lusts of the flesh. We no longer have to use our mortal members as instruments of sin, but now we should use them unto righteousness. And we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what Christians seem to be forgetting today is that we must be intentional about it. We must be intentional about it. And what do I mean by that? 
if something tempts us, get away from it or get rid of it, okay? Don't even play with it. If there's something that we need to correct in our life, we need to take appropriate steps to correct that area of our life. If there's something we're not happy with, that we know the the Bible says is inconsistent with the life of a Christian, we need to bring it out into the open and we need to deal with it. Okay? As I like to say, closets don't clean themselves. Right? As much as I wish they would, closets do not clean themselves. And I think many Christians have gotten very comfortable at stuffing the aspects of their life that they are unhappy with or they know God doesn't approve of into their closets. They don't want to deal with it. They just close the door and they walk by and they think everything's fine. But do you notice God has been pulling things out and bringing them out into the open? Moses said that. Your sin will find you out. All things are open and naked before the Lord. Those closets can't remain stuffed and closed forever. God brings them out. Here we have examples of individuals that God has sealed who have kept in line with Him and who have fulfilled that sanctification and God is praising them for it. And we do so in Christ. There's no doubt about that. We know positionally in Christ we are perfect, right? But that's positional reality needs to play out in our lives practically, doesn't it? We need to live as God has called us to live. We need to think about what we say before we say it. We need to deal with the thoughts of our minds that are not pleasing to God and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. We need to deal with the areas of our flesh that we know that God is not happy with. How do we do so? By feeding the Spirit and being intentional about getting away from those things that would lure the flesh into those type of things. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll said. He says, take some time to do a little self-examination. Ponder these penetrating and personal questions quietly before the Lord and answer them honestly. Number one, is your lifestyle an unspoken testimony of God's grace? Number one, is your lifestyle an unspoken testimony of God's grace? Number two, do you keep yourself pure and above reproach in your relationship with others, especially of those of the opposite sex? Or do you compromise, blurring the line between appropriate and inappropriate behavior and questionable speech? Number three, do you practice immediate obedience to the statements of the Scriptures? Or do you delay, rationalize, pick and choose what you choose or want to obey? Number four, do you measure your speech against the standard of absolute truth? Or do you serve up white lies, half-truths, and deceptions? And lastly, number five, he says, ask yourself this. Do you cultivate a blameless lifestyle that remains the same in private and in public? Or would the people who know you best testify to double standards and hypocrisy? Are you hiding secret sins? Again, 
One of the problems that we face as Christians, I've discovered, is that I don't know if we really understand what sin is anymore. Meaning, what does God consider sin? I don't think we know that. Why? Because the world has distorted our hearing. The world has placed glasses upon us, so when we read the Word of God, we often contextualize it and say, well, that was for them back then. It has nothing to do with me today. And I think, that's, I think that is a gross imperative. I think that is wrong. If God says something is wrong, something is wrong today as much as it was wrong back then. And these individuals should be an example. Going through the horrific period of time in which they did and that they were sold out for Jesus Christ, my question to all of us, in the time of grace in which we live today and the lack of persecution, why shouldn't we be doing that or more for the glory of God? I'm not saying live out our spiritual life in the flesh. I'm not saying that at all. That's an impossibility. But Christians have lost the understanding of being intentional about things. Just because I'm being intentional does not mean that I am uh, finishing what the Spirit has started in the energies of the flesh. Right? Now we, we can understand that, right? I'm not, just because I'm being intentional about something and addressing something head on does not mean that I am finishing something that God started in the Spirit with the flesh. I, I still meet Christians who thought, I just thought that sin was going to go away. Yeah, and a lot of them do. When I got saved, the next day there were things that I never looked at or never did again, never, never even thought to go back there. But other things lingered. And I had to be more diligent about addressing those issues straight up. And I do believe that this is a beautiful illustration of sanctification through a horrific time. God has sealed these individuals. God has kept these individuals just as God has sealed you and keeps you. One of the greatest blessings and truths of the Christian faith is this. That we are in His hands, John 10, and nothing is going to snatch us out of those hands. And if that wasn't a secure enough thought, He says, you're in my Father's hands. And nothing is going to snatch you from that. That security of knowing that God is going to preserve and keep us through this period of time. And as we continue on day by day, understanding that that preservation is meant to be given and allowed you so you can grow and be sanctified in the Lord. One of the worst pitfalls I found that a Christian can fall within is this constant idea and struggle that they somehow uh, you know, lose their salvation because of some sin that they commit and they've got to get saved all over again. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a small picture of Christ, number one. It's a gross misunderstanding of, uh, of His atonement, number two. And then they totally negate the fact that, you know, He told us that He would hold us and preserve us through our time with Christ. That's why I believe that no one can lose their salvation. But pastor, I've seen those people who they prayed a prayer and, and they kind of started on and then they just kind of fluttered away and we never saw them again. There's no fruit. I will say to you that they are one of the sow, uh, sown seeds that fell on bad ground and they were never saved. 
That's what I would say to you. That's what I would say to the person asking that question. There has to be fruit. There has to be evidence that you are a Christian after you're coming to faith in Christ. There has to be some kind of proof and evidence of that. Not just lip service, but true evidence of a changed heart. And once you have that evidence, once you see that fruit, be assured that the work that God started in you, He is faithful to complete. It is a natural thing that happens within us. Hindsight can get you to look back and say, yes, I have grown. I see the fruit. I see the changed heart, so on and so forth. Does that mean we're going to be perfect every day? No, of course not. But we should see steady, consistent growth in ourselves. And part of that growth, I think, I believe, comes in the confidence of knowing that I'm secure in Christ. That my salvation is sound in Him. And as long as there's that fruit being produced, I should then trust Him to preserve me and to hold me and to seal me. That's exactly what Paul says. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Just as these individuals were sealed, so have you been sealed. He then proceeds on. In verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to uh, to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The good news that is being proclaimed here in this eternal gospel is not the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It simply means good news. That good news is clarified by what the angel actually said in verse 7. Number one, fear God. Give Him glory. Remember, the angel is proclaiming this to a fallen, wicked, sinful world. Because the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In comparison to the one that they are worshiping that simply made the idol, etc., call down some signs and wonders, the angel is now calling these people back to God. That's the first angel. And his voice crying out. The second angel in verse 8 followed saying, Fallen, fallen is great the great Babylon, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. What is the Babylon the great? Who is he? What is it? Babylon was a city, of course, that is throughout the Old Testament that becomes the antagonist of the nation of Israel. Egypt was always known as a type of the world, showing the children of Israel coming out of Egypt into a promised land. It was a type of the world, and that imagery was used throughout the Bible, Egypt being a type of the world that we've come out of. Babylon, however, was very unique. Babylon was one of the first world empires that is acknowledged by Daniel, Daniel giving us those prophecies concerning the ruling emperors of the world, 
starting with Nebuchadnezzar himself, the head of gold. The head of gold is referring to a dream of a statue that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 2. Babylon, being the epicenter of the world, influenced the world in one of three ways, politically, economically, and religiously. The great Babylon of the book of Revelation is not a city. It is the world system that has been created and has lurched from the original origins of the original Babylon, etc. Babylon the Great. The world system that we're going to look at in more detail when we come to Revelation 18 and uh, 17 is a world system that has three legs to it. It has a political leg, it has an economic leg, and it has a religious leg. Just as the original Babylon itself influenced the world, now this last ruling governing empire empire, made of ten nations, and out of that ten nations came the little horn, which we know to be the Antichrist, who then became the leader of these ten nations, this last great uh, ruling uh, empire over the whole world. It has now it is now being destroyed. This final world system is now being destroyed. The fall of it has now been proclaimed. God is dismantling this fallen world system that is being led by the Antichrist himself so he himself then can rule within the millennial kingdom. He is dismantling what is there and we're going to see it more as we get to 18. The angel is proclaiming this warning the people in whom have just sworn their allegiance to the Antichrist, saying, it's fallen. What you think is going to be stable and continue forever, it's done and over with. God is dealing with it. And we'll see that as we look at it next time together. Isaiah 21.9, he writes and states, And behold, here comes riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fall and fall in his Babylon and all the carved images of her gods and he shall shatter them to the ground. Or Jeremiah 51.7 states, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore the nations went mad. Today we have a world system that is still, I believe, hindered by the work of God through the church today. God acting through His church as a restrainer to the evil that is actually there, Him restraining it Himself. And once that is removed, all bets are off. He will allow the Antichrist to reign and to rule and to overcome those who dwell on the earth. It'll be horrific. People think it can't get any worse than it already is. Oh, it's going to get a lot worse than it already is. And so God is now proclaiming that this Babylonian system, this great system that the world is now emulating and has adopted has fallen. That's what it talks about, who made all the nations drink the wine, the passion of her sexual immorality. And then a third angel Another angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast 
and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here it is called for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Again, in contrast to those who we find in Revelation 13, we now see their fate. And there's a lot of debate still to this day over the fact, is it possible for one who has accepted the mark of the beast to be saved? Or have they sealed their fate by taking that mark? Some believe that the Greek grammar that is found here in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast, it should be if anyone continues to worship the beast and its image, the word continue being there, the negotiated word, meaning that it may be possible for these people to be saved. This is a new concept that I personally have always believed that once they have taken this mark, they have sealed their fate. And I'm going to hold to that because of what it says here, that God will pour the full cup, full strength of his wrath upon those in his anger. And forever and ever they shall be tormented before the presence of the Lamb, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name, its name. There does appear to be a finality that these individuals have committed themselves on to the Antichrist, on to this world system, have denied the Lord, and appear to have crossed the line of no return. Is it something we should be dogmatic about? No. Uh, But I I do believe that this angel is proclaiming a woe, a judgment upon them that must be taken very, very seriously. Now, what does that say? It says that to, to me that this world is moving at a very fast pace to a climax. For the work of Antichrist is already at work in the world. And things are moving in that direction. And let us be realistic about those who are there at that moment who must decide in either receiving this mark of the beast, which we don't know in what form it will be demonstrated or manifest itself. But what is known is that number one, those who choose not to take it, they will be executed for their refusal. And number two, no one is able to buy or sell without it. It means you're going off the grid. 
It means that any type of normal lifestyle that you try and wish to maintain or obtain and maintain is now forfeit. It's going to cost you something to follow Christ and that cost will be the refusal of this particular mark. Is it hard for us to believe then that those who take this mark have then gone past a point of no return where judgment is then imminent? They've sealed their fate. In this one act of declaration, they have stood up in a complete and utter rebellion, aligning themselves with the Antichrist and saying, God, we have no need of you. Anti can also mean in place of, we choose it rather than you. It's a very sobering thought. But think about people today. Think about what people do to make money, to obtain wealth, to maintain personal possessions, materialism, etc. Think of what people sacrifice today to obtain those things. Is it hard to imagine that people, when faced with losing their life or losing their quality of life, wouldn't be easily drawn into such a thing and so forth? Knowing full well that this mark aligns themselves with the Antichrist. Not being able to go back. At this point in verses 12 and 13, there is an encouragement for those at that time who have their faith in God. Even those reading this when it was first written would have been encouraged by these things, knowing that there is one called um, Caesar who demands their worship and loyalty and requires them to surrender themselves to him as a deity and regaining a certificate that would allow them to do just that, interact in economic commerce amongst the Roman Empire. Their refusal, they could be met with fines, they could be met with prison, they could be met with death. As one wrote about that, he says this, As Warren Worsby wrote, he said, we must also keep in mind that God has repeatedly warned sinners and given them opportunities to repent. The first angel, remember, in this series, invited sinners to turn to God. The second one warned that the Babylonian system would be destroyed. If people persist in their sins, even after God sends judgments and warnings, they have only themselves to blame for their fate. In verse 12, John writes, Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Basically, he is saying it is better to die than to compromise. It is better to lay your life down than to violate yourself or defile yourself with spiritual adultery, allegiance to the Antichrist, etc. Lastly, we close the chapter with Christ himself. As the voices of victory continue in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. 
and seated on the cloud one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. This individual on the cloud, all agree, is Christ himself. The cloud often represented the glory of God. The Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, the cloud that is mentioned in the New Testament referring to His glory. There sits Christ as the Son of Man, a term that is originally coined in the book of Daniel, used 25 times in the book of Matthew, all referring to the person of Jesus Christ. Here He is wearing that golden crown, and at one time, that same brow carried a crown of thorns, and now He wears a crown of gold. Think about that for a moment. Think about that moment that Jesus Christ was brought before so many people in the belittled state that He was in. After being whipped 39 times, after being brought before different individuals for a personal inspection and decision, from King Herod to Pilate to the people. And finally He made His way by the hand of the Romans to the cross on the behalfment of the religious leaders at that time. And as he's escorted outside the walls of Jerusalem and taken to that place at Calvary, we know that most stood around and mocked him, feeling that all the claims in which he made up until that point were now dismissed because of his finality on the cross completely misunderstanding what God was doing. Completely, completely naive of the wisdom of God at that moment in all the Father was doing through the Son. Even when all turned black for those, those six hours and, 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 and the earth shook, some, some got the, the message as the Roman guard looked up and said, this is the Son of God. The centurion said, this is Him. Behold the man. This is it. And how He was then taken off. He was put into a borrowed grave. He then rose on the third day and left the people in wonder. And for 2,000 years that has continued the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of His death, burial, and resurrection. Now again, from the moment that John begins this letter, this revelation, we do not see Christ in that capacity other than a lamb that has been led to the slaughter, but we always see Him portrayed as the victorious King from the very beginning. God knew, Jesus knew what really mattered. That this world was temporary and passing, fading away quickly. Jesus knew that the people who supposedly had authority over Him could have no authority over Him whatsoever unless it was given to them by the Father. 
Jesus' perspective is a perspective that we must adopt if we are truly, truly going to satisfy the perfect will of God in our lives. We must live for eternity, not for the moment. We must not be swept away by the cares of this world and lose our focus of Christ. The disciples got that picture after the resurrection. Jesus' own half-brothers, James and Jude, they got that understanding. They understood that there was something more going on. And until Christians in our nation wake up and really understand the reality that our Christ is living and He is not dead, and that He is reigning, and here He is seen in this particular situation with that crown of gold upon His head. Let us think of God in that image. Not the one hanging from the cross. That was His fleshly body. But let us understand that He rose again and He is now King of kings, Lord of lords. And the sign that they put above the cross was absolutely true. This is the difference between the Christianity of of living victoriously and those who are living vicariously through the lives of others. Now, it is interesting that the sickle is used, which is often used in the manner of harvest. Some believe that the first individual mentioned here is Christ, the second being an angel, of course. The first sickle is that of uh, reaping the uh, righteous, but that can't be within this context. He is pouring upon judgment upon the earth as the sickle sweeps across this earth in judgment. Listen to what Joel said in Joel three thirteen through 17. Put the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread for the winepress is full The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Again we read, as he came out of the temple in heaven, the angel said to him, go, and with the sharp sickle in his hand, And he said, go, put your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. The condition of the world at that time, scholars find within the words fully ripe, that it is a term used in the Greek to describe the fruit of a, a tree or the head of a grain or the fruit of the vine as beyond being ripe. How many of you, when you go grocery shopping, when you go to the produce, make the mistake of buying the nice yellow bananas once you get there? We've done this for years. Oh, they look so good. They look so yellow. They look perfect. 
You get them home, you put them in the fruit bowl there on your counter, and within one day, that beautiful yellow banana is now brown. And you're like, what happened? It's beyond ripe now. And they see in this that God in His patience and long-suffering has waited as long as He possibly can. In His desire all people to be saved, though knowing that that wasn't going to occur, but allowing for that opportunity, it is past time now and the world must be dealt with for the wickedness of the world is overwhelming and must be dealt with. And within the first sickle of Christ across the earth, it is shown as uh, the harvest is being, uh, uh, being uh, swept through in the sense of the, the wheat harvest and whatever. And now is the time. And it has to be done now. The severity of the judgment after being introduced in its swiftness and how sudden it becomes upon the earth. If you notice, he says here, uh, I lost my place. Verse 17, excuse me. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle to the earth. I'm sorry, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth for the grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes of harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle and for 1,600 stadias, which is about 184 miles. The severity of the judgment is found in this portion. Not only is it swift, not only is it sudden, not only is it you know, very precise, God exercising that authority as John 5.22 tells us that Jesus was given the authority of judgment, the one who has redeemed the world through his sacrifice and resurrection. Now judging it, the severity of that judgment is overwhelming. What is this meant here? Obviously this is the text where we get the famous battle hymn of the Republic from. But what do these words actually mean? It means that it's going to be horrific, as one commentator put it. It's going to be a very, very horrific time. And most believe that this is referring to that final battle that takes place in the valley of Megiddo where at one time the armies of the earth come together against the Antichrist which we'll show you as we progress in Revelation. And as the return of Christ they turn towards Him and Christ then deals with them by the words of His mouth. The sword of His mouth. It'll be a horrific time. There are many different opinions concerning the depth of the blood being as high as a horse's bridle. There are some that find passages in the Old Testament that talk about the uh, bridle splatter 
that would occur in war. In fact, it's not in the Bible. It's in a book called First Enoch. Some have talked about that. The 184 miles could be the width of the uh, nation of Israel. There's many different opinions here. But the end of this battle is going to be horrific. Again, think of these words from, from Joel. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars without their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Zechariah wrote of this time when he said this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoils taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of battle. And on the day that His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which all believe is referring to His second coming, that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall be moved northwards and the other half southwards. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azul. And you shall flee as you have fled from the earthquakes and the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This day of judgment, this voice of victory, in this moment of judgment, the finality is putting into place for the ultimate reconciliation of the world back onto God. This is the battle that must be fought before the war can be ultimately won. And God, though already has won it, now the battle must be fought and victory lies in its wake. The assuredness of that victory is complete. There is no ambiguity to the fact that God has won. The reality is, though, that that victory must be secured in this last event. There are two things I want to leave you with today. The book of Revelation should absolutely sharpen our understanding of the grace of God that we enjoy today like never before. I cannot read the book of Revelation without walking away and saying, God, thank you for the grace that you have given me today. Not only that grace that he gave me at that moment when I came out of the world into him, 
for it was a work of grace in my life by his orchestration that allowed me to come to him. But that work of grace that he continues to allow me to enjoy that allows me to fulfill the plans and purposes that he has for me. The grace of God demonstrated in such a miraculous way. We should never take that for granted. Because a moment of time is coming up, and this is the second point I want to leave you with. Number one, understand the grace of God in the light of everything that we have read. Judgment is coming. He's going to unfold it upon the world. And it is going to be a horrific period of time. But even at that moment, He sustains those who are His. Even though some will have to go to their death, He will sustain them. For you and I today, without the persecution that they are facing, without the tribulation that they are experiencing, why are we not living full on for Christ in His grace that He has given us? First thing to wrestle with. At the Lord's second coming, number two, we must understand that all all, all unrighteousness is going to be dealt with. This is it. Nobody likes to read about everlasting torment. Nobody likes to read about the judgment of God. But it is a reality of the Christian faith that must be understood and embraced in the life of the believer. There is an accountability that God is going to hold the world to. Nobody is going to get away with anything. Either it's going to be paid for at the cross in Christ, or they are going to have to deal with it at the end in their life, standing before God individually, solely, isolated apart from Christ, finding there there is no place in the kingdom of God for them, and an eternity waits for them separated from God, Or at the very end of it all, not only the people who are living at that moment, but the world system itself, everything is going to be dealt with in a finality and all unrighteousness is going to be um, uh, dealt with and held accountable. What does that mean for you and I? Don't get sidetracked. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't get discouraged as if things seem to go uh, unattended. God will deal with these things and more at the end. As we continue next week, we will continue to see the voices of victory as God continues to pour out His wrath upon this earth. Then we'll get into 17 and 18 and we'll look at the fallen religious system. We'll look at the fallen world system that has been judged and dealt with and and eliminated. 19, we get to the return of Jesus Christ. 20, we get into the millennial kingdom. 21 and 22, we get into the uh, new heavens and the new earth.